0: God continues to lead us from his word. But prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away. He has immediately forgotten what kind of a person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. Well, brothers and sisters, Let's turn our attention to the word of God, and let's pay attention to what we see.
1: I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Esther, chapter 8. We'll be reading verses 15 through 17. As you're doing so, let me give you a quick run-up on where we are. So we are currently in the last big section, uh, not, or the second last big section in Esther. Esther 7, 8, 9 to, uh, uh, to verse 15, two and a half uh, chapters, in which um, all of God's providences of chapters 1 through 6 are coming to a culmination. And from this, we have deduced that this indeed is a shadow, a picture of the um ultimate end, um, the telos of God's providence in our life. So in chapter 7, we saw the destruction of the wicked. Chapter 8, 1 through 2, this incredible re- reversal. And then we advance two and a half months to verse 3 of chapter 8, where once again Esther is approaching the king, asking him to please change revert the decree um, that, ha- that originated with Haman, the first decree. And the king, you recall last week, basically says, I can't change it. That is a law that cannot be changed. But you're in authority now. You and Mordecai uh, work out a, a workaround on your own. And so they came out with a workaround. That workaround was a, a decree, a second de- a decree, which in essence deputized God's people. For one day, And on the day that Haman had... His decree had deputized the nation to kill Jews. The Jews then were deputized to defend. And that led to rejoicing on the part, not just of the Jews, but the entire kingdom of Persia. And that rejoicing is captured for us in the text at which we're looking this morning. So let me invite you to look with me at at Esther 8 verses 15 through 17. And as this isn't God's word, and we're here worshiping God formally, let's, in response to the reading of God's word, stand out of reverence and respect. Another now the word of our king. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a large crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. For the Jews, there was light and gladness and joy and honor and in every and in each and every province and in each and every city, wherever the king's commandment and his decree arrived, there was gladness and joy for the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many among the peoples of the land became Jews for the dread of the Jews had fallen on them. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the privilege of worship and the opportunity you've given us now, Lord, to come before you and fellowship with you in response to James 1 and, and Lord, by your grace, that we would not be forgetful hearers, but that, Lord, we would come and gaze uh, upon Christ and upon the glories of your word and that we would uh, respond indeed to be a people of hope and joy and gladness and anticipation of you and what you're doing in our lives. We entrust this time to you now, Lord, bless, teach, Holy Spirit, enable us to hear it, to apply it unto your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. One of my favorite hymn writers is someone that you may or may not know of, William Cooper. He lived 1731 to 1800, and he wrote, in my estimation, some of the most practical, inspiring, um, helpful, and encouraging hymns. In the hymnal. There are not a lot of them, but they're just fantastic. And what makes them so fantastic is they recognize we live in a state of sin and misery, and they give us such a glorious hope and answer for that. Now, how is, how is it that he could write such great hymns where we live? Well, the answer is because he himself struggled. He struggled with depression, major depression throughout his entire life. He had four massive episodes that debilitated him. And out of those episodes came many of the hymns that we read and cherish. But nevertheless, there were times in his life, as orthodox as he was, as much as he knew God and loved God and served God, where his trials and difficulties and hardships of the present world blocked his gaze of God. And that's exactly where God's people were found when Esther was written. You recall that that God's people with the book of Esther are on the cusp of the intertestamental period where there are no prophets. There there would be no prophets, no more revelation, no more miracles, no uh, theocratic kings. The theocracy is gone. God's people were left to live as aliens and strangers in a foreign land subjugated by and led by these evil people. People who do not know God and do not love God and do not serve God. And rather than cling, because all they would have is God's word, just like us, all they would have is God's word, rather than clinging to the truth of God's word, the promises of God's word, the identity of what they were in God's word to God, they chose rather to live like, you, to live like many of us. And that is to live in a world where we feel distant from God and have hardships and difficulty, knowing that those difficulties are there because somehow we earned it. We owe, God owes this to us because we have done such horrible things. And so rather than enjoy God and serve God and see him by faith in all the difficulties of the life that they were having, Esther's generation lived alienated from God. And so God gave this incredible Old Testament gospel to his people to teach them an incredible truth that when God seems so distant in your life, he has never left you. He is most near. We see that beautifully encapsulated by uh, a Cooper's hymn. Listen to it. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence... He hides a smiling face. But what an incredible description of the flow of the book of Esther. Esther 1 through 6 was the clouds that they so much dread had descended upon God's people. And it clearly was a frowning providence that they deduced meant that God was displeased with them. So they lived their lives not seeing that behind that frowning providence was a smiling face. Not seeing that those clouds they so much dread would break with blessings upon them. In fact, I think the greatest uh, summary of what we've seen thus far is the next stanza, where he writes, blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. That's the book of Esther. God gave this book to make plain to to his alienated people, not alienated from him. They felt alienated. God gave this book to his alienated people who felt God was distant, God no longer cared for them, and and if he did, he clearly was disciplining them to show them, to give a commentary on how they ought to think and live in the world in which they lived. And what was that commentary? Simply this, brothers and sisters, that God indeed is actively working in the lives of his people regardless of their status, their own perceptive status before him. He's always working. He's working for his glory and our good. Now, we see this in chapter 7, 8, and 9. 8 is the chapter we're on. We've seen this chapter with some incredible truths. One, we saw a shocking and unbelievably glorious reversal that occurred, a foretaste of what's going to happen at the end of your life in this world. Secondly, last week we saw a shocking and unbelievably wise solution for the people of God, which we'll reference here in a little bit. And now finally, verses 15 through 17, we we read about the shocking and unbelievably deep rejoicing which erupted when Mordecai and Esther sent out the decree. Now notice with me there are three reasons why people were were so filled with um, rejoicing. The first one is, is on account of an office attained. Notice with me, if you would, verse 15. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes, in blue and white, with a large crown of gold, and a garment, of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. Now we can take the shouting and rejoicing one of three ways. It could just be feigned. It could be fake. It could just be the typical rejoicing you can imagine living in Rome in the ancient world when they'd have these these uh, parades that, of course, you had to shake and cheer and shout because if you didn't, you'd get in trouble. It was fake. They, didn't, they weren't happy. They were simply uh, faking. And no doubt, there was a bunch of people in, in Susa, the capital, who had that kind of rejoicing. Secondly, you'd have the rejoicing that might, we might uh, um, attribute to the rejoicing of, of Happy New Year, right? Of a new year. It's real. There's happiness here. There's excitement. But it's, it's very horizontal, it's It not, has nothing to do with eternity. But then, and no, and no doubt, there was a bunch of that going on. But then there's the rejoicing of the kingdom of God. And to understand what that rejoicing is, insofar as God's people were giving that kind of rejoicing, let me describe to you a little bit. Let's get behind the veil, behind the, the curtain, and understand the rejoicing that is kingdom-centered rejoicing. And to do that, we begin by looking at Um, the comparison which is demanded by the book of Esther and Daniel. When you look at that contrast or the comparison between them, we know that clearly Esther was written and and making, uh, he has so many references to Daniel, same language, same thoughts, same concepts, As Daniel, and thus, as as the quote I've got there, as Ian DeGreed recognized, the similarity of Esther's position to that of Daniel and his three friends exiled and incorporated into the imperial system highlights also what is different about them. There's clearly a, 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 a comparison. But the benefit comes is when we see the contrast. Okay, So, for example, we saw that Daniel and Esther roughly were the same age. We've seen that. We've also seen that both were called to eat the king's food. Both would be used by God to protect God's people. Both would rise to a place of highest authority. Okay? But again, it's the contrast that sticks out for us as we seek to understand kingdom rejoicing. And that contrast begins when we look at Daniel and his friends. Daniel was a man clearly devoted unto the Lord, strong, passionate uh, faith in God, all four of them. They didn't eat the king's food. They they bore the banner of of Christ boldly. And they rose to great power. And if you look at that passage moralistically, it's easy to conclude that the reason they rose to power was because Daniel and his friends were so devout, so godly, so dependent upon God. That's why they rose to power. But then we look at Esther and Mordecai, and it's the exact opposite. We wouldn't make that mistake with Esther. We wouldn't, see, we wouldn't say, go be Esther. I, I, I've already sh- uh, tried that on uh, with you all. Hey, yeah, hey, man, let's, let's go find a movie star. Uh, Brad Pitt's available, Johnny Depp, right? And try to marry our daughters to him. You know, because that'd be a place, to, uh, on and on. You wouldn't do that. You'd say that would be worldly. That would be wrong, but that's what happened with Esther, Rather than saying nope, I may have been selected, but I'm eating my food and I'm going to stand up for God. She didn't. She embraced it. So now, but yet God raised Mordecai and Esther to the position, the exact same corresponding position as Daniel and his three friends. Really, Daniel. And we ask then, why? What is it about Mordecai and Esther that made God raise them up? What did they do? that made them deserving of such an an exaltation? And the answer is what? Nothing. And from that we begin to see the nature of the kingdom of God. Remember years ago in our study hour, we looked, we were going through the Bible on a survey and we looked at Saul. We saw how Saul was deposed because of his rebellion, his wickedness, his evilness. And then we went to David. And I remember in that class asking the class, guys, what is it that made David, why is it that God would use David the way that he did? And, and, and we typically got the typical answer. He was a man after God's own heart. He loved Jesus. He was, he was, he was devoted. He did all these different things. But brothers and sisters, you compare David to Saul, and I'm telling you, there's more about there's more negative about David than there is Saul. I mean, Saul sought to kill David. Oh David killed Uriah. David, I'll just give you my little list. He was a liar. He was irresponsible. In times went, when the kings went to battle, he stayed home. He had a lust problem, which led ultimately to adultery. He then did everything he could to cover it up. He then killed the husband of the woman with whom he slept. He was an absent father and incredibly blind when it came to his children. He brought a curse to God's people on account of his pride in numbering the nation. And the list goes on and on. Why was David exalted? Our performance-based assumption says because he was so devoted. But you look at the history and you go, it wasn't because he was devoted. Well, why was he? Well, what's his name? That begins to give us the answer. His name is Dawid in the Hebrew, which means beloved of God. You know why he was exalted? Because God loved him. Why did God love him? I don't know. (laughs) He set his love upon him from eternity past. That's why... David, that's why what happened to David happened to today because God loved him. Why is it that Mordecai and, and Esther were where they were? Because God loved them. It has nothing to do with what they did. It has everything to do with God's purpose, pleasure, and will. Is that not what Paul teaches us in Romans chapter 9? Hear this kingdom principle. Hear this once and for all, if we can. Hear it, Romans 9. And not only this, but there were, there was Rebecca also. When she had conceived twins by one man, one father, Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born and had done nothing, anything good or bad, and this is it, in order that God's purpose, according to his choice, might stand. His purpose, according to his choice, might stand, not because of their works, but because of him who calls. It was said of her, the older will serve the younger, Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Brothers and sisters, what explains Mordecai and Esther's glorious turnaround? What explains Mordecai's fantastic position? Prime minister, the most powerful person next to King Ahasuerus, wearing the clothes that he was. What explains it from a true believer's perspective, by faith? It had nothing to do with them. It had everything to do with God. These people's rejoicing was over God. And over, there was a significant portion in Susa that was rejoicing because of God and what God was doing in their day, in their midst, how he turned the difficulties into glorious blessings. Brothers and sisters, that's the God we serve. And you may in your life, like Boyce, James Montgomery Boyce, You may in your life die the horrible death, but with Boyce's last breath, what was it? He heals me. God will heal me. Brothers and sisters, do you understand? God, the whole flow of redemptive history, big and in your life, individually, the whole flow of God's providential care in your life is to exalt you just like he exalted Mordecai and Esther. We've already seen that. That's where everything's going, to his glory and praise. So first, we see this amazing, unthinkably glorious um, office attained. Wow, they rejoiced because of that. Secondly, would you notice they rejoiced because of redemption? Notice verse 16. For the, the, the Jews, were there was light and gladness and joy and honor, ironically, each one of those, are the exact opposite of what we we read in Esther 4.3. When Haman's decree was passed, there was mourning, fasting, weeping, and wailing. The exact opposite. Okay, what a contrast. Another contrast being thrown here. Unlike with Haman's the first decree, God's people, there was light and gladness and joy and honor and in each and every province and in each and every city, whenever, wherever the king's commandment and his decree arrived, there was gladness and joy for the Jews, a feast and a holiday. The focus, guys, is on this is somewhat shocking The first decree, what was it? Haman's decree, that obviously was the king's decree, was that in 11 months, the rest of the empire would be deputized and for one day be agents of Persia and wipe out the Jews. This is last week. If the Jews sought to protect themselves and were successful and they killed one of the agents of Persia, they would be executed. Just like a prisoner who kills a prison guard would be tried for murder. So that was the first decree. On such and such a day, the entire world is going to kill God's people. And you know what's amazing? The second decree didn't change any of that. Do you realize that? This second decree didn't change any of that. The same decree couldn't change. It was unalterable, as we saw last week. But yet they're filled with rejoicing. Look at what it says here. There was, their depression vanished. There was light. They were filled with gladness of heart. Instead of worry, concerned for the future, there was joy. Their focus was, was realigned such that they began to value what truly was important. There was honor, which w- refers to something weighty. And there was feasting and, uh, and uh, a holiday. Seems like a strange response to a decree that didn't change anything about the future. Right? But yet there was this glory. Why did they respond the way they did? This is last week. They responded the way they did because while the second decree could not change the first, nevertheless, by virtue of the decree, what did it do? It took away the threat of violence, the threat of death. It took away that which was hostile to God's people. Do you remember that? Okay, how did it do it? Well, it deputized God's people. Haman's decree deputized the entire kingdom, made it lawful for them to kill Jews. The second decree deputized God's people, which made it lawful that if they were attacked, only if they were attacked, they could respond. Which means if someone came by their house and threw a rock at it, they could kill that person's wife, children, take their property, their wealth, all of it. Do you see what it did? It made a detente. It made, it made, it made them back to the way it should be, where, yeah, you, you can't do that. Right? So they were rejoicing because the threat of that which was hostile, was removed. Brothers and sisters, let us take a page from that playbook. There is a threat. You, you know, life on this earth, we, we don't realize this. Every one of us here has a threat that we're going to face at the end of our lives. You're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ all by yourself. And you're going to stare up into the eyes of God. And he's going to judge you for your sin. That is not going to change. That will never change. There's nothing God can do to change that. Because that's justice. This is last weeks. Right? So what did God do? He gave a second decree. And that second decree, the law of substitution, by which he himself was born under that same standard, received the judgment, and then gives us his life. Brothers, that's That's what the gospel is. You and I have received the judgment already. Did you hear that? At the end of your life, when you stand before the king, do you understand the verdict that he will read has been rendered? And that verdict is not guilty by virtue of the death of Jesus Christ. Incredible. Listen to some passages. Colossians 2 Says when you were dead in your trespasses and sins and, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having cancelled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, and which was hostile to us. He's taken out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Is that incredible? You know what that means? There's therefore now Romans eight. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Jesus Christ, the judgment that awaits the every individual on this earth, including you and me, that judgment is not guilty. It's already been rendered. Is that incredible? You got in the mail because of Jesus Christ of a document which says your impending trial. The verdict is this, even before you've been tried. You're going into a law, into a law case, a law room, a courtroom, going to be standing before a judge to be judged, and you already have a certificate signed by the judge saying, not guilty. What does that make you do? It makes you approach that day with a sense of of excitement, of joy, because it is well with your soul. And thus rejoicing. Romans 5. Therefore having been declared not guilty by faith. That's a judicial decree. A legal decree. The decree that God will give to everybody on the last day. Or at least that's what the people want. This declaration. Not guilty or guilty. Having been been justified. Having been declared not guilty. We have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And what do we do? We exalt in hope of the glory of God. But the second reason why God's people were rejoicing because the threat was removed. The hostility of death is gone. Brothers and sisters, ought not that to be our constant life? The threat of death of judgment is gone. Listen to the words of Landon Dowden. The edict that Mordecai sent out informed the Jews. The king granted them permission to defend themselves. If the Jews celebrated in hearing that they could at least fight for victory, how much greater should should our rejoicing be since Christ has won ours? Man, brothers and sisters, do you understand the genesis, the basis, the essence of worship is? It's coming here each week and celebrating, rejoicing exactly as they did, with joy and gladness and satisfaction. It is well with our soul and feasting the table and rejoicing. It's a holiday. It's a holy day. It's the only holy day left in biblical um, in the Bible. The Sabbath, a day where we come and rejoice and 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 praise God uh, together, brothers and sisters. May this be the beginning. Why it's the first of the week? The beginning of that which pervades the entire week. It is well with our soul. So secondly, they rejoice because of the redemption granted. Thirdly, would you notice lastly, on account of God's evident weightiness, his glory. Notice with me 17b. And many among the peoples of the land became Jews. Interesting. For the dread of the Jews had fallen on them. So as a result of the decree, the second decree, many throughout Persia became Jews. Now why would they become Jews? Because of this decree. Because of the dread of the Jews was upon them. Now what is that? Okay, well let's define that real quickly. First of all, recognize that doesn't mean that many people became genuine believers of God. Genuinely saved. There were a lot of people, no doubt, it was fake. But no doubt, there were a lot of people that were real. They genuinely became Jews. Okay, well, what is that? What, what, what led to it? Well, it was the dread of, of the Jews. What is that dread? Fill in the blank. That dread is, um, ultimately, was a recognition of the providential power and working of God. What is the dread? It was the recognition of the providential power and working of God. Walk with me through this for a little bit. In the ancient world... The ancient world was polytheistic, which means they believed in many gods. The ancient world also believed that these many gods did not rule sovereignly over the entire world, like we understand the one and only God does, over the universe, right? They believed that these many gods typically ruled over a region, a location, a locale. And that is why when you moved in the ancient world from one city to the next, one region to the next, one country to the next, you typically converted, just like you see here. You see um, all these people being brought in. If you moved, you would convert to Apollo. You would convert to um, ISIS. You would convert to the different gods who were in power in that local region. Now, we look at that and we laugh at that. We think that's so silly, you mean to tell me you worshiped that God there and you're going to come over here and worship that? You're going to reject that God and worship this God? Well, right. Because your God is, has no power in this region. This region is ruled by this God. Now we look at that and we laugh. But you've got to realize something. There is something behind this. Hear this. There's something at real behind the ancient world's proclivity to exchange gods. For fear of the local god. We start with 1 Corinthians 10. Listen to what Paul wrote. No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons. Do you understand what Paul just said there? 1 Corinthians 10.20. He says that behind every false religion, cult, name it, is a demon. So we think, you know, there's false religions. These are people who turn their backs upon God and they're going in the opposite direction, Romans chapter 1. And that's correct. But you understand what they're worshiping ultimately is a demon. Behind every false religion Buddhism, Islam, Mormonism, um, uh, Confucianism, I mean all all the various and sundries, Christian science, all of them are demons. Now, what do we know about demons? Not every demon, but some demons, what do we know about them? Well, listen to Daniel chapter 10. Speaking of the angel Gabriel. Daniel wrote, then he said to me, do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I, Gabriel, have come in response to your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia, that's a demon. It's a demon assigned to the oversight of Persia. But the prince of of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for twenty-one days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, angels, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings, the demons of Persia. From this passage and many others, we looked at this when we looked at Daniel. From this passage and other such passages, we understand that the demonic angels, the fallen angels, these demons, are highly organized, some of which are assigned to certain regions. So in the ancient world, when you left one region and went to another region, and you and you, you know thumbed your what do you thumb your nose? What do you do? Um, thumb your nose at the local deities, they were thumbing their nose at a demon. How many times did that demon make their lives miserable? So no doubt there was something behind. This proclivity in the ancient world to go and exchange gods every time you moved to, to another place. And that is why, now this is the, the point. That is why when God's people went into exile from Jerusalem to Persia, initially everybody thought that their God was weak, including the Jews. Now they would have known better, but many thought, man, oh man. But in that world where they were going, they would have all but said, ha ha, your God's weak. Your God, who's confined to Jerusalem, to Palestine, Couldn't handle our God, which lives in Persia. Our Persian God conquered your God. Well, brothers and sisters, what then did God do with his people? Redemptively, in redemptive history, what did he do? Think back with me in the Bible. What frequently did God do with his people when they were living in a foreign land? Well, think of it. We have Noah's day. Noah was attacked for 120 years. And then what did God do? Abraham's day, he went to Egypt. And, Egypt's house, and Pharaoh's household was cursed until it was discovered they were part of the people of God. Joseph. What happened with Joseph in Potiphar's house and then in Egypt? Look at Moses in the Exodus. Look at the wilderness wanderings. Everywhere they went in the wilderness, I, when they started uh, coming back in to the uh, uh, promised land, people were saying, go, man, Go. you're God's powerful. They come to the conquest. Man, this is the people. You can't stand before this people because they're God's powerful. Everywhere they went in the ancient world, God demonstrated to these local populations that God Almighty reigns. He used his people to demonstrate that God Almighty reigns. Think of of God with the Philistines and how the ark single-handedly conquered that entire nation. God did with, with that ark. What's he saying? God Almighty reigns. We see it, brothers and sisters, Isaiah 64. For from of old they have not heard nor perceived by ear, neither has the eye seen a God besides thee, who acts on behalf of the one who waits for him. That is the theme of this last part. part. In in, um, Persia, the people, the populace beheld, what's the dread of the Jews? They beheld The power of God that protects and um, strengthens and uses his people unto a certain end. We see it with Daniel, the comparison. Exactly. What happened with Daniel? Well, let's see. Before Daniel, before, you know, as God's people were, Daniel was in the first exile, 605, as God's in the second exile, 586 and 597, as they were coming to Persia to, at the time, Um, what is it to Babylon? What is it that that God's people were met with? Well, it turns out before that, God humbled Nebuchadnezzar. So much so that Nebuchadnezzar posted these road signs throughout the entire kingdom of Babylon. Listen to it. But at the end of this period I Nebuchadnezzar raised my eyes towards heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the most high in praise and praised and honored him, who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation, and all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What hast thou done? That's the dread of the Jews. And that's exactly what happened in Esther Mordecai's day. And because of that, many in Persia said, falsely perhaps, I'm exchanging my local God for that God because that God's more powerful. Genuine believers know. But no doubt there were many who came to a saving knowledge of God based upon what God had done, taking these sinful, insignificant, um, conquered people and raising him up again. Think of Daniel, Mordecai, Esther, again to the place of second powerful person in Persia. Wow. And brothers and sisters, guess what? God still works that way. Do you realize that? He still works that way. First, first Peter three fifteen. What does Peter tell us? A little bit changed, a little twist, but listen to what he says. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Did you get that, guys? God still works through his people. But what he works through is not positions of power. Peter tells us, get ready, in the intertestamental period, now in, now in the, the post-testamental period, how, guys, what should we expect? God will, by, by virtue of our What? Hear what it's not. Not our morality. Not our superiority. Not our education. Not our dress. Not our conspiracy theories, even if they're right. What is it that God's going to use to open non-believers' eyes? It's hope in a world as bad as this is. That's what gets me about the last three years in God's people. Man, we, you have one of two things. You either ran, you're you either frightened, you, ah, you know, this, this, this virus is going to kill me. And if you die, what's going to happen? You're going to go be a Jesus. You know, during the Black Death, how many Christians went and ministered to people dying? But what did we do? Man, we ran. Or, or. We flaunted and we said, "Ah, the, you know, all, all we could talk about is the conspiracy theories and, and all of this and all of that and, and thumbing our nose at, at the authorities. Brothers and sisters, what should have characterized us and what must characterize us today, tomorrow, and in the coming years? The hope of God. The glorious expectation, hope is the is, is a certain expectation, anticipation, the hope that we have that, that in Christ we are reigning and co-reigning, that right now everything going on in our lives is according to the wise counsel of a good God who's bringing even our pain to the point where he's honored and glorified and for our good. We live in a world where God still sovereignly reigns. And what you see in Esther still is going on today And if you and I will open our eyes by faith, by the Holy Spirit, and see it, and believe it, guess what we become characterized by? Instead of Eeyore, right? We're characterized by hope, and joy, and rejoicing, and gladness. You remember Father, I forget the guy's name now. Um, that Colson tells in the story of the body, the, the, the starvation bunker, right? And um, normally it was a time of dread and horrible whining and crying and, and scratching and killing of one another, Instead, Father, whatever his name is, volunteered to go in, and he went there, and he was a shepherd, as as he writes it. The shepherd this time went with the 14 other people. And out of the bunker on the third day where you'd normally hear yelling and screaming and whining and crying and, and, and murdering of each other, instead, they sang hymns. And that's how they died, praising God. Do you know when the Titanic went down, what God's people were singing? Okay? Abide with me. Fast falls the even tide. The darkness deepens. O oh, Lord, with me abide. When other helpers fail and comforts flee, O oh, thou who changest not, abide with me. Brothers and sisters, this, this glorious climax of chapter 9 is a, a, once again an incredible foretaste of how you and I can live in this world. Knowing the providences of God. Knowing where they go. Brothers and sisters, we're going to be exalted. Christ is exalted. We're in Christ. We're going to be exalted in him. We're no different from Mordecai Esther. The threat contained in the law is gone for us, not believers. They're going to stand before God on their own and eventually be sent out of hell. Not us. We're not guilty of it. Talk about redemption and rejoicing and celebration. And then to know the future. And to know that our God reigns. That nothing going on in this world could ever, ever, not even the smallest molecule, stop God from doing his glorious purpose. Man, when you live in that world, brothers and sisters, all of a sudden what comes from us is light and joy and hope such that the world, not all of them, but by the working of the Spirit of God opens their eyes and said, what is the secret of your hope? May God give us the grace to trust him that way. But before we close this service, guess what we get to do? We get a feast, just like they feasted. This holy day that God's given us, we get a feast as we close out this service. And that feasting revolves around the body and blood of Jesus Christ, bread that represents his life, wine that represents a covenant, the new covenant in his blood. Family of God, let us go to the table of the Lord, and let's enjoy him. But first, let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that a passage we're gazing at here is written as if it were describing our future. Lord, we are just like God's people before chapter 7. And so many in your body, so many in this body perhaps, live with a daily sense of of heaviness, of guilt, floating guilt, floating sense that, of foreboding, that, Lord, we've done something wrong to merit what's going on in our lives. God, grant us the grace by faith to behold you as you manifested yourself to your people in Esther. Such a glorious legacy for your people in the intertestamental period and for us today. Let us behold you as you manifest yourself here. Demonstrating your greatness, your omnipotence, your glory, but also your kindness and your love and your compassion and your purpose. A purpose which will dethrone and destroy the non-believer. But Lord, will take your people home to a victory celebration we cannot even imagine on this side of the grave. But Lord, we'll all be there. Fathers, we take this coming meal. May we take it as a forgiven people, as a um, sinless people, as a people reconciled with you, our God. May we take it as a people trusting you for what you're going to do and how you're going to do it. And let's take a, Lord, I pray you give us the grace that we might take it as a people who would say, if the Lord should deign our death, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, so be it. But we're going to worship you, our God, for we know where all this leads. God, thank you for your word. Bless this time now, we pray in Christ's name, amen.